Hey there, friend. Listen, I want to invite you to join me for an upcoming presentation I'm offering called How to Shift from Willpower to Want Power. If you're tired of feeling like you have the best of intentions with food and weight, only to have it all fall by the wayside by the time your head hits the pillow at night, then this is for you. If you're interested in making permanent weight loss easier and less of a struggle, then this is for you. If you're curious what want power is, which you probably should be, and can't wait to learn how to incorporate it into your journey toward peace and freedom around food, then this is for you. I'll be presenting live twice on Wednesday, May 1st, 2024, at both noon and 7.30 p.m. Central Time Zone. I'll answer your questions live and we'll have a really good time together. But if you can't make either of those days, I'm not going to make you get a replay emailed into your inbox only for it to get lost and never be watched no matter how deeply you want to make time to go through it. Because I mean, honestly, who are we kidding? (laughs) We've all done this, including me. No, instead, we are offering multiple watch parties for several days after the live presentation. So come watch the replay with other doctors and interact in the chat with them and my team. So either way, whether you come live or to a watch party, it will be worth your time for sure. All you have to do is register at katrinaubellmd.com forward slash want power. That's katrinaubellmd.com forward slash w-a-n-t-p-o-w-e-r. See you there. You are listening to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast with Katrina Ubell, MD, episode number 217. Welcome to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Master Certified Life and Weight Loss Coach, Katrina Ubell, MD. This is the podcast where busy doctors like you come to learn how to lose weight for the last time by harnessing the power of your mind. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating and exhaustion and move into freedom around food, you're in the right place. Well, hey there, my friend. Welcome back to the podcast. And if you are new here, I'm so glad you are here. I have a really fun episode for you today, just a really interesting one. Today is another amazing weight loss success story. Didn't I tell you these are so fun? (laughs) I get the best feedback on these. Everybody loves these so much. And today I have an interview with Amy O'Boyle, MD. She is someone who actually, it was really great. She reached out saying, you know what, I think I have a, a definitely like a different story and something that's really interesting because I come to this having first worked through an alcohol addiction issue, and then coming into doing this work. So it wasn't that long ago that I had Sherry Price on the podcast. We were talking about people who want to moderate their drinking or drink less. And we were saying, you know, we're not talking to people who are into AA or rehab or things like that, but there are still totally tons of people who do great on AA and do great with rehab. And that's exactly what they need. And Amy is one of those people. So she's going to tell you the whole story about how as a physician, she found herself drinking more and more using alcohol to cope with all the stresses of her life, like just like normal stuff, like we all go through and how she got to the point where she realized she actually had a problem, everything that she did to solve that problem. And then how she realized, you know, what, I need to do some work on myself with food and eating as well. And so how she has just created 
an amazing result for herself in digging into the mindset work when it comes to food. So she is a great asset to our program. She's just a really fun person to have around and such a really interesting story. So I can't wait for you to hear all about Amy on this episode. So with that, I bring you Amy O'Boyle, MD, and I'll talk to you next week. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Katrina, for having me. <laughs> I think this is going to be such a good conversation. I was just telling you before we hit record, I can't wait to just hear more and really get into all the details. But before we really dig into everything, could you just give us a, a brief little overview of who you are? Yes, I am actually an OBGYN and urogynecologist, right now practicing mostly urogynecology. I, two years ago, retired from a 23-year career in the Navy. I am married to a gynecologic oncologist who went to the Naval Academy and also retired Navy physician. And we have three boys, two in college and one who's in high school starting his Zoom class right now. Right. (laughs) And it's been quite a journey. I've been two years now practicing as a civilian. Did you go straight? Like, did you do residency and then like how, how did that go did you residency so in the military partway I started okay. civilian and then I had an op- I was an OBGYN resident intern in New Orleans and I was on the Navy Health Profession Scholarship and got an opportunity to do residency in San Diego and I was like uh, oh I want to move to San that Diego that sounds amazing so I, <laughs> I switched and finished my residency in San Diego uh, in OBGYN And then I was out as a general OBGYN for two years before I did fellowship in the military. And then I've been practicing mostly in, well, as a subspecialist in the military, you're usually at a training program. So I've always been in resident education and then fellowship. I was fellowship program director too. Okay, cool, cool. Okay, let's back it up though. Let's, Let's go to the beginning now. So as a child, did you struggle with your weight? There was some times when I did, probably when I was peripubertal. Okay. And I noticed that happened in two of my kids, like right before they went into their growth spurt, we were overweight. Actually, my youngest son, he was basically morbidly obese until just two years ago. So actually the sugar film and the obesity code was life-changing for pretty much everyone in my family. But I do remember my grandmother one time telling me I I had fat thighs and that like stuck with me Mm -hmm. forever. (laughs) Then there were times, most of my adulthood, I was probably pretty thin. And then in the military, you have to maintain a weight standard. Yes. And I never even got out of weight standards when I was pregnant. Like I prided myself in that, but It was really the last few years before, actually after I stopped drinking, Yeah, I think I replaced that buffer Mm -hmm. with food and carbs and my weight started to balloon and I, I really struggled to stay within my weight standards and maintain my fitness and I couldn't figure out what was going on and got to the point where my son noticed I had a Buffalo hump. I don't have it anymore, but like I was Mm -hmm. really getting that central obesity I could mm-hmm. barely wear my uniform. It was it was really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But most of my young adult life, I was a runner and pretty fit and in normal weight. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. And so your journey was much more centered on alcohol first before we got to the food stuff. So let's talk about that first. Yeah. So actually I I was thinking about this. I was everybody in my family. (laughs) I think about it. There are a lot of people in recovery. So my father, my parents got divorced when I was little. He went to rehab after they divorced that, you know, that stuck in my mind. My mom and my stepdad, my mother had a problem with alcohol. Most of my young childhood and early teen years. And there was a lot of trauma in that my parents kind of physical abuse of each other. And my mother got arrested. And then when I was in like early high school, she went to a rehab or inpatient treatment. And most, I think, rehab programs involve a family, have like a family program where you go and you're learning about the alcoholism, you're meeting with counselors. And so that like really stuck in my mind. You know, I was probably like 15 or 16. And then the transformation my mother had after that, I mean, she went from really a mess. She, she would sometimes not come home. She'd be gone for days. I mean, it was awful. She became the most beautiful person when she stopped drinking. She was just, you know, she had nice nails. She, I mean, it, it went from a life of insanity to sanity. So that was very powerful, I think, having that experience. And then subsequently, Lots of people in my family stopped drinking, my sister, her, her husband, my aunt. So in my early adulthood, I viewed your relationship with alcohol as something you eventually give up. So I think oh. in my mind, I was always thinking, well, I'm going to have to stop sometime. Mm-hmm. Did you start as a teenager? Yeah, I probably started having alcohol with like my boyfriend in high school. I didn't like mm-hmm. it. I drank socially in college, just like, you know, after exams or occasionally. Then in medical school, I went to med school in New Orleans. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, the culture of like happy hours began, I think, in mm-hmm. medical school, but I still only drank periodically. And then as an OBGYN in training, I think it becomes very much more ingrained the idea of the happy hour. And it becoming very socially acceptable to, you know, have a long day in the OR and then go get drinks with people. Mm -hmm. And so back then, like before I got married, it was still just social drinking with my colleagues. Yeah. And then after I got married, I was actually worried about marrying my husband because I was worried he had tendencies towards alcoholism. And I remember thinking, I don't know if this is going to work, you know, two people with maybe family history of alcoholism, maybe you shouldn't do that. And it really crossed my mind. And there was one incident that made me really almost break off a relationship, but I didn't. And then we actually lived apart for three years. So, and we had a six month old child before we ever lived together. Oh my gosh. (laughs) When we came together, it was after his fellowship in Gainog. It was really a dramatic change for me to be living with someone, have a child, move across the country, and then start a new job. So a lot of things happen. And my husband, 
I don't want to blame him for making me drink, but gradually over the course of having three children and life and being fairly high, high achieving in our jobs, in our positions, we went from occasional weekend drinkers to at some point we probably consumed alcohol every evening. Mm -hmm. And then after that always bothered me, it always bugged me a lot, you know, Mm because I was thinking, you know, this is probably making me gain weight. This is probably impairing my sleep. I knew of the effects Mm -hmm. of alcohol and how it's, it decreases your REM sleep. So that really bothered me as an OBGYN. I mean, I need to get sleep, especially when you're sleeping, it needs to be good. Yeah. (laughs) Like life with three young boys was so hard. Like we, even as subspecialists, we had to take OB call in house in the military. Mm. And we would fight over who got to be on call. Like my husband would take my call for me because he's going to go home with the kids. That was like our most stressful time of day. And I, yeah. And I have great kids. Like, yeah, no, it's just, it's just the function of having children of that age. Yeah, and, yeah. And mm-hmm. I think we had high, all three of my boys are now Eagle Scouts, which probably kind of set, it shows the setting of our life. We were so focused on helping our kids and helping them achieve and mm-hmm. trying to be perfect, you know, in our job. Right. And, and then I would say when I, I volunteered to go to Afghanistan, I actually oh, okay. didn't really volunteer. My husband was in a position where he had to find somebody to go. Oh. And I felt like I need to step up and do this. Uh, I need to do this to get my next rank. I don't know. I felt a lot of pressure, you know, like, okay, I should just do it. And so I did that, which and was how long were you there for? Yeah. Uh, about 10 months. Oh, wow. And okay. People go for a year, but I went yeah. as like the first Navy OBGYN to a, the trauma area where I was. And yeah, that's a whole separate story. But when I got back, even before I came back, I was worried, what is it? going to be like to start drinking again. So you like, didn't you drink while you were there. You, you can't. can't drink. Okay. And it was like, great. You know, you, I lost a oh. lot of weight. I was like, you're working out. You're, you're physically active. I mean, that's the good part of deployment. It's like, what would we say? It's like moments of sheer terror interspersed with sheer boredom or something like yeah. that. You have these yeah. highs and lows, but yeah. I felt really healthy when I got back. Yeah. And I was worried about starting to drink again. Yeah. And I had, how were you from a mindset perspective though, with all that, like, were you on, like, give me an idea of what an OBGYN does in deployment. You're not like, doing just OBGYN stuff, right? No, You're no. With, yeah. I actually, okay. I actually had some really good gynecologic cases. And I had one like postpartum Afghani woman who had like an early fistula, like really interesting oh, yeah. things, but mostly I was helping the trauma surgeons. I was scrubbing on a lot of general surgery, some orthosurgery, neurosurgery, did a lot of appendectomies and then just outpatient stuff that I could do. And even things I shouldn't have been doing. I was like in the middle of the night, sewing up some guy's foot. Uh, (laughs) I reconstructed someone's scrotum that got blown up. I mean, just weird. Yes. Right. You know, they we say you can't make this shit up. I mean, like, right. what yeah, doing? like, right. <laughs> but you really can't. It's like you've got stories for days. Right. right. But it was when I got back from there, 
I had taken on so many jobs. Like uh, I took on and got a fellowship program director job. We moved our family to, uh, we went to a new duty station for that job. And then I had two other jobs I had taken on. I just like overcommitted myself. Yeah. We moved into a small house compared to, we had a beautiful home in Virginia on the golf course. I mean, we had a nice life there and then we changed and downgraded. And in that time, you know, with all the professional pressure that like kind of grew rapidly, the decline in my environment, we were all sharing one bathroom, five of us. I mean, it was really weird, but I began drinking, not just drinking with my husband in the evenings at home, but it began where I I was doing this other job, which was was called a consultant to the Surgeon General, like on top okay. of my other job. And I would make an excuse for myself to, okay, I'm, I just need to go get a few drinks on my way home and read my Blackberry or whatever. I felt like I justified doing that. And I began doing it like all the time before I would go back home. Interesting. And then I would have wine at home. Yeah. And so I was just it just became a daily thing. And I remember driving home one day from work going, having such a strong pull to, I mean, it was so easy. I lived in Bethesda, Maryland, and there's so many restaurants and places right nearby where you could pop in and have a few glasses of wine. It seemed very normal there. But I remember driving home going, I should go work out. Like that's what I really need to do is Mm. just go on a run And I just, I couldn't stop. I went to this little hole in the wall place a few blocks from my house and I just sat there and drank wine. And it's like every episode I would do that, it really, it didn't really affect me anymore. You know, I became definitely tolerant and, Mm -hmm. but it became so, I just really needed to do it. It was really Mm -hmm. weird. And then I noticed like coming home post-call there was a day where I was like, I wanted to drink when I got home in the morning. And I was like, Mm. there was a few times I noticed myself shaking. And meanwhile, during all this time, I had kind of sent myself to a psychiatrist. I was taking antidepressant after antidepressant. Then I was on ADD medication. And then I was on sleeping medication. All of this going on, it was like, insanity, you know, what were you trying to, what were you trying to medicate though? Did you feel like you had like focus issues or do you think you were depressed? Yeah, everything I I thought I had, I thought I was severely depressed. I thought I had ADHD, couldn't focus. I couldn't get stuff done. Do you think that was because of the alcohol? I do. Oh, okay. Okay. I do. I now do because as of now, I mean, it actually, since I've retired from the military and I've just started a new life, There's a lot of changes besides me being in Waldo, which has been really helpful over the last two years. I haven't been on any antidepressants. I don't take, I don't take any medications anymore. I mean, Mm. I occasionally take Motrin or melatonin, but I, I can't believe I was taking all those substances. Mm. And I feel like it was like, I need to concentrate. Oh, I need to get to sleep. I need to. Yeah. And then you weren't sleeping well because you're drinking so much. Right. So it's just like, 
all of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it was in a way where it still appeared very socially normal in the group I was in. In -hmm. fact, that residency program where I was in, I became, after I wasn't drinking anymore, I noticed, wow, there is such a strong focus on drinking in this residency program. You know, like I was actually almost appalled. I, you're like, um, so in it, you couldn't even see what was happening. Well, when I was able to back up, I noticed, oh my God, look at the culture I've been in, in the last 10 years. What do no wonder we drink (laughs) and that's how we all cope. And it seems so normal. Every professional meeting, all the happy hours, all the parents, you know, the parents dealing with young kids and mm-hmm. all the stuff that goes along with schedules and everything. It, right. It just seemed so normal. But then I was noticing my behaviors and the way I drank. And I think if you're in this or you really are like an alcoholic or have an alcohol use disorder, you can, I can spot alcoholics. I can be sitting in a, at a table with people and I know who the people are. I feel like, I don't know. It's like, I don't, I don't know if it was on a podcast where you, you notice somebody eating something and they leave it on their plate and they don't even finish it. Like yeah. an alcoholic and, and their glass of wine, you would stare at somebody leaving a little bit in their glass. It's mm. like, Oh my God. You're not going like, to leave that. Are you? <laughs> yeah. oh <my> God. <laughs> Can I eat that? Yes. I don't know, but it was, I was aware of my behaviors and my behaviors changed when I drank. I did have blackouts. I had hangovers. I felt terrible. I still had to get up and go to work, but I didn't get up early. I got up at the last minute. I I wasn't thriving. I was failing to thrive and I was missing things and deadlines. And I had asked to be sent to a psychiatrist. I was meeting with her and I had finally said, I think I have a problem with alcohol. And after I said that or admitted it, mm-hmm. like really told her, I, I was then on this fast track. That's when everything changed. And I suddenly, it was like I had this huge weight lifted off my shoulder, shoulders. <laughs> but right before and the events leading to that, my life was, was insane. Like there was so much going on. And I think things that fueled it were just pressures, just pressures in my marriage too. We were like trying to be the perfect parents. We were trying to be the perfect people in our jobs, you know, which means commitments outside of work and a lot of time demands and trying to be involved in everything with the kids' school or their sports. And, and of course our kids were in scouting also. So it was insane. I mean, there was a time where I, I had a nanny for my nanny. Like it got oh, so wow. crazy. Yeah. You know? That's like <laughs> what we were dealing with. Okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of leads me to advice I could give later to young moms. Like yeah, what yeah. not to do. But, yeah. but yeah, so once like, you made that, you made that, that admission to the psychiatrist. Yeah. Like, it, oh yeah. Okay. This is the problem. Yeah. And I, I remember I came home. She basically said, okay we're going to get you help. And it was like this, I think I had mentioned it to her before, but it was this one visit where I really like, I really, 
I really need help. I just knew it. I couldn't, I Mm. couldn't stop. I had tried different times to stop and I would come back to drinking and do crazy stuff, like stuff I didn't want my kids to grow up seeing happening. You know, it was like, my kids shouldn't see their parents, you know, passing out every night at at home. You know, it wasn't that bad, but to me, I knew it was not normal. Yeah, I just felt like this is wrong. And there has to be a better, healthier way to live your life. I didn't realize I was buffering so heavily, but I was. And then once I really made the admission to her, I came home and I told my husband, I said, I'm an alcoholic. He's like, what? You're not. And so like, even though I, for me, I came to that realization that I knew I needed to get help. It was a surprise to everybody around me. So I was able to like stay in a facade And there are a few little breaks where people might notice my behavior as abnormal. No one really called me out on it except my mom. So like around the same time I I was with my mom, we take an annual trip together and she had seen me in some situations where I clearly was over drinking. And she said, Amy, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to kill yourself. And so I think, all of these things, it was like a perfect storm that led yeah. to me really deciding to make a change. And once I did, I was reported to the, the hospital provider wellness committee. And then they like, kind of, I, I can't remember all the details, but it's like they or, ordered an assessment. You know, I had mm-hmm. an assessment met with like an addiction or alcohol counselor in the hospital And it kind of led to maybe, I think I may have attended one of the doctor's AA meetings and met some people. And then they made a recommendation that I go into an inpatient treatment facility for health professionals. And I thought about it. I think I went to a few AA meetings that they had recommended I attend. And then I was like, I'll do it. And so I did it. Were you concerned that about, I'm just curious with the military, were you concerned about like promotions and like that this would hurt your career? I mean, yeah. were you planning at this time to be a lifelong military yeah, doctor? Yeah, but I was okay. already, I had just put on my ring, like 06. I, yeah, had so I don't know what that ring. means, but that's a good so thing. I, okay. I made, <laughs> so I've kind of gotten to the point where I'd achieved what I wanted to achieve in my career. I was toward okay. the end of it. And I... Yeah, it, it worried me, but I I don't know. Some some of my colleagues thought I was kind of crazy to to come out like that. Yeah, and yeah. it probably was in a way, but I'm glad I did it in hindsight. Yeah. Like I don't know if I could have really changed on my own. Yeah, just but trying to, to reduce on your own without any skills or, yeah, or I think it would be really, really hard. But that 10 weeks in the inpatient, it's a, it was a program in Alabama. That's really good. I was actually just looking at their website. They have a ton of good resources. It's called Bradford Health Services, but they have a specialization on healthcare providers, you know, like doctors, nurses, mm-hmm. whatever. And they have yeah. a program for military oh, people like and first responders. So they, that's kind of their area of, of focus, but Usually physicians who are put into that program, they get paired mostly with other 
providers or healthcare people, usually doctors end up being in it like 10 or 12 weeks. Most just normal people, civilians, not not high risk, I guess, end up maybe doing a four-week program typically if somebody does it. Yeah. Because of the level of responsibility you have in your career, they wanted to do a more intensive... I think it's fairly routine. I think usually 12 weeks is probably more common. I got 10 weeks. I think in hindsight, so I'll back up again. I ended up going, you know, we had to make arrangements to help. My mother came out and stayed to help my husband with the kids. Right. Because you're Um, just like leaving this busy, busy life with a nanny who has a nanny, you know. (laughs) He did it when I was deployed. I mean, he's amazing. But that was like when we had nannies for nannies, like all these that we paid. But when I went, they immediately put you into a detox. But before that, I had made the decision a few weeks before I I knew I was going to quit drinking. So I stopped. So I'd actually stopped drinking. And was I detoxing? I don't know. Luckily, I didn't have a seizure or anything really weird. But I, I also think I wasn't as bad as I could have been. You know, I didn't have any legal things. It never affected anything where I was forced. I think with my knowledge from having been exposed as a child or to my mom, it probably prompted me to get help much sooner. Mm. And so when I went, I was in the detox. They didn't have to give me any medications because I wasn't really at risk for seizing. But it was an eye-opening experience to get placed in an environment where you're like with some heroin addicts and mm. people that like I wouldn't normally ever encounter on a daily basis. Yeah. And I was like, well, should I be here? But I'm like, okay, I'm going to embrace it and roll with it. But then yeah. after that detox section, I got placed into a house with Mostly other healthcare professionals. So some other doctors and nurses and people that I really bonded with. And I remember one was like a general surgery resident and most nurses, doctors, pharmacists. We actually had a lawyer in our group. So we were in a house and then in that environment, they focus on you taking away your buffers. So like you can't watch TV. You're not supposed to read books. You're not supposed to over-exercise. What else? The one thing they couldn't take away was food and like smoking cigarettes. But Mm. people I noticed tend to do way more of that when they got there. I probably started eating way more carbs when I was there, but Mm. our day was just filled with what they would call programming. So different small groups, lectures, one-on-one therapies, one-on-one with a psychiatrist, one-on-one with an addiction specialist. So it's like The whole week was very active and you're doing basically self-work. It's like thought work. You know, you're working on yourself. You're looking at your life. You're getting things out of you, you know? Yes. Um, Yeah. And it's like a moment or a time where you completely focus on yourself and your life. I mean, it's very, it was great. I actually liked it a lot. It was a really good thing. And I'm very fortunate that the Navy paid for it. Because there was people mortgaging their houses to get into that program, you know, like, yeah. So I got lucky. I don't even know if the military still pays for for it, honestly. That's good. Yeah. And so when I came out, you know, I had to face life. I was in some pretty high profile positions where I just had to come clean and say, hey, this is what happened to me. This is where I'm at. 
returned to doing my job. I still had to do two years of like a monitoring program in my hospital. And I think it was like once a week breathalyzers and maybe once a week group therapy things where I was, man, I was with wounded warriors and stuff and people just talking about our, you know, life now without alcohol, whatever people talk about, they talk about life when they're in AA meetings or whatever, just their challenges with life. I did that and I was doing like every six month reports to my medical license and that went on for five years, but then I was discharged from all of that and I kept active in AA. I had a sponsor. I did all the stuff you're supposed to do. Did you relapse at all or no? No, no, no. And people talk about doctors and relapse and I had attended a doctor's AA meeting that Doctors don't usually relapse very well. Like people with serious addiction problems. I mean, we had, oh, people who really were having a hard time. It seems like in hindsight, it was very easy for me. Like I was, I took to it very well. I adapted to that life, but doctors don't typically do well. I just heard of so many that would end up committing suicide or yeah, (laughs) I just yeah. was like, I'm not going there. I don't yeah. need alcohol. It, it was, it was really an adjustment to the new lifestyle. I, I won't, I won't lie. It was hard. It's sort of like when you first go off, no sugar, no flour. I mean, you, yeah. it's a quite an adjustment, but once you start replacing old activities without the substance, mm-hmm. you learn a new way of enjoying. I yeah. kind of think of it like, you know, in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, where it's all in black and white, mm-hmm. and then she comes out into Munchkin Land, and it's like, what, full Technicolor? That's yeah. sort of how I felt like my life was. I was just like, it became more fulfilling and open mm-hmm. when I really, really got away from the alcohol. It, it was you know more authentic. Yeah. What I think is interesting is like you have your mom's experience as such a great example, right? Of like really, really super struggling going through rehab and then seeing her really thriving on the other side of that. And so I wonder if that helped you like compared to other people, like you were saying how some other doctors will end up, you know, deciding that suicide is the the best option for them in that moment or whatever. Like, I wonder if for you, you really had such a great example of people in your family who'd gone through rehab, had stopped drinking, you know, had made good on their lives and were doing better. And so you saw that more as a viable option for you than maybe others do. Yeah. And I would always tell myself too, and we, my husband and I, we drank a lot for so many years, but we would go to work functions. I remember being at a, like a Christmas party for my department and there were several Mormon families Mm-hmm. And I would look at them and I was like, they were the ones doing karaoke. They right, were the right, only people right. not drinking, but they were actually having the most fun. And I always like thought, you know, I really don't need to drink alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it really isn't helping me. And I was convinced it was keeping me with a spare tire around my middle. You know, I just yeah. always thought, yeah. why am I doing this? You know, like, why am I drinking? It's really not helping me. Right. It's just right, helping right. me escape. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's really uh, what it is, right? It's like you, yeah. you logically, rationally understood that like you don't need this at all, right. but 
it is, it's like, you know, kind of like that easy button, right? It's just like, yeah, exactly. I don't want to feel boom. What do you think? Like now looking back at all of this, like the alcohol is, you know, a way to sort of check out from what's going on for you. So like, even, you know, when you were getting to that place where you were like on the way home, stopping and having a couple drinks before going home and stuff like that, do you have some insight now into what was really going on for you then? Like what was happening for you that you wanted to stress yourself from or avoid? I think it was facing like an overwhelm with just what was going on at home. Yeah. Which my husband is an awesome person, but he's also very, uh, it brings out this quality in me to feel like I need to be a perfect person because <laughs> he's okay. pretty high functioning. And so he was the person who could come home. He keeps a calendar. He knows what's going on. I always just am like, oh, I don't want to do the homework. I don't want I mm. just didn't want to do that. <laughs> I love my kids, but like there's certain things I could do with my kids that my husband can't stand doing. But yeah, the stuff at home at night, I had also gotten on an editorial board and we literally had to review eight manuscripts a month. I did that on top of my consultant to the Surgeon General job and my fellowship program director job where we were then moving into ACG accreditation. So literally I had too much crap to do and I didn't want to do it. I just want right. to come home. So and, just want to avoid it wow. avoid like yeah. the overwhelm and avoid just the dread of, of it all. Yeah. And yeah. my house is messy. I, I couldn't walk. There's shoes and backpacks everywhere in the small house mm-hmm. we moved into. It, mm-hmm. I mean, part of it was like the clutter, you know, when you have three boys and a husband, it's hard to keep your house clean or looking not cluttered. I swear to God, we still have 20,000 shoes. Like, <laughs> why are there so many shoes? <laughs> you know, when you walk in your house, yeah. like, God dang it. Yeah, I think right. it was exactly. all of that together. Yes. And then professionally, I had gone from my prior job before the that job, I was president of the elect of the medical staff. I was running a division. I was running, you know, resident rotations. It was a more loving and professional environment. And I, I guess I had some really good leaders that kind of, they were more mentors. And then when I moved to the new job, it was at Walter Reed. It was a harsh, more cutthroat environment professionally I just wasn't used to that like my idea was we we kind of share you know I got put on other people's manuscripts on papers and I felt like people were very generous to me when I was in training or in fellowship and then it wasn't like that where I went I felt excluded my self-esteem took a big hit in that environment and I Mm. I guess it was sort of like going from being the a fish in a small pond to a big yeah. pond where you kind yes. of, I don't know, I got lost. And, yeah. you know, I did enough leadership things where you would do quizzes of yourself and your leadership style and your personality style. And I knew I was more of a introvert and I had a different style from a lot of the people that were in leadership positions. So I was sort of like a square peg in a round hole. Mm-hmm. So like I could get, to, I tried to explain, like, I'm going to get to the same spot I'm just going to take a different path getting there. And so people who were very more type A, who mm-hmm. I worked for, 
it rubbed them the wrong way. And so he would clash. Mm -hmm. I don't don't know. That's kind of my interpretation of it. I just Mm -hmm. was more maybe too free spirited for the Mm -hmm. army environment. Maybe. I don't know. Well, you know, when you think about like, you know, you've got these issues at work going on. Right. And then home, like there's no oasis, right. It doesn't sound like in this life, there right? no there's no place. <laughs> like the oasis is at the bar, you know, yeah. like that's, there's that's really, exactly. That's well, yeah. Yes. Where it's like a beautiful environment, visually beautiful. Like no one needs anything from you. You can just have a moment to yourself. Like, so just to, just to explain, right. Like, I think still people will think like, you know, well, if you are relying or over relying on alcohol to feel better, that means something negative about you. Like, no, like you're just a human being who's just trying to find a way to deal and didn't have any other tools went down that direction. Right. It's like, anybody couldn't find themselves. Playing like in rehab too, like if you started drinking, like say you were a teenager, you're, you left your emotional self of that age. So like when you re-enter and you're not drinking anymore, you're sort of still at that early emotional state. And I really believe that was true. Like I, uh, you know, just with doing thought work now, I really understand it. Like yeah. things I would get mad at my husband about, which my God, if I had had the manual back then, you know, if I understood <laughs> the concept of the manual, I wouldn't be flying off the handle because of what other people were doing and living in victim mentality. I think when I stopped drinking, it was just like all of that is so raw and there, you know, all the stuff to deal with, you're not ready to deal with. And yeah, that was hard. Like I would say the first two years when I wasn't drinking was like just dealing with life on life's terms, as they say, was just kind of painful do you yeah. have any issues with your kid, like how with your kids, like explaining what was going on or like why you were gone for 10 weeks or yeah, like actually that? one of the other things that prompted me, and I don't, I think this was right before I made the decision to go to rehab when I was meeting with one of the counselors or through that provider wellness program, I had heard of some women physicians who actually lost their kids or, oh. you know, so that idea or concept of whoa, what if I did get pulled over? What would, that would be a career ending move. You know, if I got arrested, Mm -hmm. what if I got pulled over and I, you know, I admit this and I, this is what really, really bothered me is we would sometimes go out to dinner and we would both have drinks and we would drive with our kids in the car. Maybe we didn't drive very far, but the fact that I was driving my children, I, I just, I had such a problem with that. It, it didn't seem to bother my husband as much, but probably he wasn't as affected when we went out to dinner. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that realization, like you're going to lose your kids and you're going to lose your career if you keep doing this. That's really, really drove it home. And I was like, yeah. yeah, but like I was pretty open with my kids about it. And really it's like, I don't want you guys to think that this is normal. People shouldn't have to come home from work and drink wine until they go to bed. Yeah. You know, and, and right. they were a teenager. So it was like that time where they were preteens or whatever, you know, it was mm-hmm. getting into that time where I wanted to model coping behaviors to them, you know, during that time of their life where that's where they learn coping strategies, you know, the most yeah. challenging times when you're a teen or middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. So that was the other driving force, not 
Oh my God, I was just self-critical of my drinking, but that I didn't want to do something stupid that would jeopardize my family, really. Totally. totally. More than my job, you know, so I wanted to protect my children. Yeah. Yeah. So you do the, you're, you're, you do all the treatment, you do the whole AA thing, all of that. When did food start becoming sort of the supplemental issue? I think it gradually happened. It probably started when I was in rehab because you lose all of your, whatever you can buffer with. You don't have your phones. You don't have a cell phone. You don't have a computer. You don't have TV. You just literally um, have to be with yourself. You can't do anything. Yeah, like. yeah. So I would, we would make food and eating was probably just the most pleasurable thing I did in rehab besides maybe getting to go on a little run or do a little workout. That's pretty much it. Let's see. So I, I went to rehab or treatment in February of 2012. So it's been, you know, almost nine years. Mm -hmm. I just think we weren't very healthy. We would do a lot of, you know, when you're, when you're so busy, probably order more pizza than you normally would. Or looking back, I just think we were, we were kind of in a survival mode and then it came out in our eating. We weren't Mm -hmm. making these nice, healthy, low fat, meals. We were probably just in general eating more carb. Yeah. Maybe having more fast processed things. Plus I was near Georgetown cupcakes, which <laughs> I absolutely loved and became addicted to. So yeah, it just was much more of a carby life, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's just like, you know, I mean, you can't blame your brain. It's like, okay, we can't feel better with alcohol anymore. We can't feel better with all these other things that have all been taken away. <laughs> like, where's the pleasure in life? And it's yeah. like, Ooh, let's have, get all our pleasure from food. You yeah, know, let's exactly. like really think about the cupcakes and like all the, you know, the pizza and all the things that, that we but can it's have. Like, um, going out to dinner is like a social thing and eating mm-hmm. with your family is that your time to talk to your kids. And yeah, it, a lot of times it was just so easy to go to a restaurant near where we lived because yeah. We didn't feel like cooking because we didn't feel like cleaning and we had to right. get up early. Exactly. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So then what was your journey on kind of discovering, okay, the food thing is not an issue. And then, you know, you've referred to Waldo just in case anyone doesn't know what that is. That's our abbreviation for weight loss for doctors only, the coaching program that I run, which we all affectionately call Waldo. But what was that journey like? Okay. So looking back, I actually probably joined Weight Watchers like three different times and it was, you know, I'd lose some weight and then it would just pop back up and it was just becoming so hard to keep the weight down. Nothing was doing anything. And then my son's like, you have a Buffalo hump. And I was like, oh my God, I've become fat. Like I, I was really bothered by it. And then when I got out of the military, I had like two two months before I started my next job. And I really ballooned on like, whoa, I don't have to do a physical fitness test anymore. But then I think when I, a friend of mine told me about your podcast. And then when you, I think when we start the program, you tell us to watch the sugar film and read Mm -hmm. the obesity code, which I did, which to me, like I made my husband read that book and I, made my entire family watch that movie. I was like, this is the most important medical information I've heard in my entire career. This is so powerful. 
Yeah. And so totally. it just it was like, it all started making sense. Mm-hmm. And I really understood more like, oh, well, no dub, you know, alcohol has this effect on me, you know, the dopamine. Yeah. And, and then I started doing the no sugar, no flour before I joined the program and immediately lost a lot of weight. I think the first week going off no sugar, no flour, I had a lot of headaches, Mm -hmm. but I began feeling so much better. I mean, I felt great when I wasn't waking up with a hangover every day, but this was another level of just feeling really great in your body. Like it's hard to explain. I mean, if you're living on eating crappy food, you don't realize how bad you feel exactly. until you feel really good, you know? Exactly. So yes. I am probably like a fanatic and I think probably some of my family thinks I'm a little crazy, but I'm like, <laughs> this is medical information. That is right. so amazing. I mean, why do you, I mean, I think all these people dying of COVID are they the ones that are still drinking, eating sugar and flour? I mean, I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. So once I started the program and was really doing it, I probably, you know, it was easy to lose the weight, you mm-hmm. know, stopping sugar and flour. It came off very quickly. And I probably wasn't digging into the thought work as well in the beginning. And I probably wouldn't be consistently doing my food journaling or thought downloads. But over the last two years, I have incorporated so many of the principles of the Waldo program that I think are better for me than like even AA was because it's getting you out of yourself. It's making you accountable for your actions, getting out of victim mentality, doing a daily check-in. So Mm -hmm. You know, I started doing like my thought downloads and journaling my food journal at night mm-hmm. and I would sometimes skip it because I was tired, but now I get up early to do it and I commit to doing that every day. And I realize if I don't do it, I feel squirrely, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't want to do it all the time, but it works, you know, mm-hmm. taking yeah, the time really helps. to write it down to actually do the thought work. And then when we added I don't remember how far into the program, the one-on-one coaching, then it Mm -hmm. really, I think it took another level or went to another level of, I don't know how you can not live like this, having a life coach to talk to, doing a daily thought download and actually analyzing and using the thought model. I just, Mm -hmm. it's like, once you know it and you, it's like hard to even imagine a life where you're not going back. Yeah. So, so when I listen to the calls, which I love listening to the calls, I do it every day. My heart almost breaks when I hear the young moms struggling, you know, with things with their husbands, you know, coming home from work, all that stuff. I'm like, Oh my God, I, I know where you are. You know, I feel that. But then when people talk about the alcohol thing or the thought of like having to get, give up sugar and flour, I think I made that full transition where it really doesn't bother me, the thought of never having alcohol again. Mm. And so it was easy to make the jump. Like, look, I'm never going to be somebody who's eating cupcakes every day. It doesn't work. And I don't feel good when I do it. I mean, I had a cupcake joy a week ago. And afterwards I was like this, I don't even feel very good now. It was, I mean, it's it's like, I don't care. I feel like you get to this point where like what's worth eating 
is a very yeah. short list. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm making my food boring, but my life is getting, my life is so much better than it was. So yeah. I don't know That's if that answered any questions. Yeah. 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 But so, so, you know, I know you, you were really like one of the things that really drew you to volunteering to come onto this podcast and share your story is just thinking about the women who are, you know, maybe 15 years ahead of you or, you know, you know, not, I guess behind you, you know, or like, or 18 years behind yeah. you, something like that, who have little, yeah. little kids and who are struggling, who feel like this need to be the perfect mom, like all of that. What, what is your message for those women? Oh, so I would probably say first listen to drop the perfectionism podcast. <laughs> that was probably the best one. And I, I, I actually made one of my kids listen to it. Progress, not perfection. I mean, don't throw yourself down the whole flight of steps just because you've tripped on one step. You know, it's more yeah. making that shift or that mind shift to it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to make mistakes. Just keep going, keep making progress. You know, yeah. what's that one quote when you're going through hell, just keep going, you know, just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. The other bit of advice I would say is, Trust your husband. You know, husbands can do stuff too. They may just do it differently with the kids or the house than you would do it, but let them do it. You know, yeah. let people help you outsource things you really don't want to do. Like, I think you mentioned get someone to do your laundry, have, have someone, someone clean, clean your, your house, house. Yeah, do the do yard work. Yeah. Come cook sometimes just because it's like, I want a healthy meal, but I don't want to do Don't have the time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Don't be afraid to spend the money to spend more time with your kids. I mean, I learned right. the hard or way. Or even just to have free time for yourself to rest. Yes, like that's yourself. not indulgent. I think so many of us were raised, especially if you were raised maybe without a lot of money, thinking yeah. like that is so extravagant and ridiculous, right? And excessive to do that. Exactly. And learning, no, but, like you're in a place now yeah. where, you know, what you're offering during the day, you know, whether it's your family or professionally, whatever you're doing all day long, like, you earn a, a living for a reason. There's a reason doctors are paid the way they're paid. And one of the benefits of that is that you can ask for that help when you need it. Yeah. And I would definitely do that. I think when people try to do it all, which is this mistake I made, I think I was trying to do everything perfectly. I mean, I, yeah. I knew I had a problem when I decided I'm going to clean my house and I spent the entire day on one bathroom. It's like, <laughs> I should not be doing this. Someone right. else should do this for me. Yeah. So let go and let other people help you. And I was really bothered by clutter and stuff. So I just got someone to clean more often. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. these little things. I'm not going to make my husband a non-cluttered clean person. I know yeah. that now after right. 27 right. years. So yeah. <laughs> working on accepting him and loving him as he is. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, just as a pediatrician, I can tell you, you know, I saw many, 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 you know, thousands of couples come through with their baby, you know, and, and then growing their families and stuff. And definitely it actually was there as well. This issue was there with same-sex couples as well. But I think more intensely on average with hetero couples where it really is this message of like the mom is the one who can do it right. And her message to the husband, you know, to or the person who did not birth the baby, you know, which is like, you can't do it right. 
And yeah. what, what ends up happening is they believe you <laughs> that they can't do it right. right. And they get in trouble every time they try to help. And so they really are then trained to not help. So yeah. if, I see this all the time where they're like, then they're, you know, people are complaining like, oh, my husband isn't more involved or doesn't help more. But, yeah. you know, you got to take responsibility for your part in training him to act that way. Exactly. And like for me, exactly. I, I just was really like, there is no way I'm doing this all myself. And I'm 100% willing to let him do whatever he has to do to sort himself yeah. out and figure this out. And, you know, the, the cool thing that I saw was that like with my own husband was, you know, when I let him have the opportunity, he really rose to the challenge. Like I was yeah. the one who taught him how to swaddle a baby. I'm the pediatrician, <laughs> you know, he could yeah. swaddle a baby so much better than me. Like it did not take him long. And I'm like, oh my God, you're so good at this. Like you just have to give them the opportunity to even rise to the occasion. Or like you yeah. said, do it differently or, you know, like sometimes I think we get so mad, like we've been gone. I would be gone all day on call, you know, finally come yeah. home and like nothing had been done around the house, but those kids had the best time with their dad. Exactly. But then I'm like jealous <laughs> and resentful because they got to have fun. And now I get to come yeah, home yeah. and, you know, whatever has to be done around the house and, and do that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you get a little perspective, it's like, okay, my kids have a father who loves them and wants to be involved in their lives. Who's gone most of the week, who is enjoying spending time with them right now. Like, yeah, would it be nice if you did some other stuff? <laughs> right, exactly. Like, maybe, but also it's totally okay. And like, why am I perseverating on that? Instead yeah. of just being so happy for all of them that they got that time together. I remember one time coming home, opening the door, walking in, and <laughs> my husband was holding my daughter, who was a baby. I mean, she was probably like six months old. And they come around the corner and she has one of the kids for their birthday they had gotten like a balloon animal, you know, book and like a, the, all the like long balloons and like a little thing to blow them up and stuff. And she had this like massive hat of like this, this huge, like balloon hat that he had created on her head. And of course, you know, the other kids come running they're all still in their pajamas. It's the afternoon. Everyone's like laughing, like, you know what? They're just having the time of their lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? What dad's, do their thing and not make them feel bad. Yeah. I think exactly. That's and it's important for yeah. them to feel like they're a valuable member of the child's life. Like they really are part of the child's life. They really, really are. Yeah. They're and I was lucky. Right? He, you know, when he was there, when I was in Afghanistan, it forced him. And we made a lot of changes after that with stuff he handles. And so now we have a really good division of work. Mm -hmm. And I, because he had to or step up. Exactly. Letting him yeah. Do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, question yeah. I have in, you know, without you, you just share as much as you feel like you're, you know, able to share, but when you, cause you had done so much of your drinking with your husband, when you then stopped, how did that affect his relationship with alcohol? So he had a pot belly. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good husband. He basically quit. And so he drinks rarely. If he does, it's probably at a meeting when I'm not there. Okay. Occasionally now, more recently, sometimes if we're in a social setting, he may get a glass of wine. And it bothered me a lot in the beginning. And then I actually did thought work on it after this program. Mm -hmm. Like, why does that bother me? And it was really, I think I was mourning the camaraderie you have and the feeling of connection you can get sometimes with alcohol. Yeah. I think it made it easier for me to be intimate with alcohol. I realized, yeah. um, I'm not going to lie. I mourned that, but he was fully on board and supported and 
you know, basically quit drinking. Yeah. If he drinks, it's a tiny percentage of time and mm. now looks very physically fit and good. It, it, mm. it helped him medically, I think, too. So that really worked out well that he was, you know, supportive in that way. Because I would imagine yeah, if he was still drinking all night long, that might have been more challenging for you. You would hear, yeah, you would hear in, I think, AA meetings and rehab, like how relationships would fall apart when one person stopped drinking. So I, I think that really does happen. Mm-hmm. I think I just got lucky that he... Were you worried about that? Sometimes I would worry, like, did he like me better when I drank? Or I was probably more fun sometimes. Yeah, it was like the life of the party. You know, I'd party mm-hmm. all night, you know. But I think as we have evolved now, we're learning how to have fun, you know, mm-hmm. in when well, we're in COVID. So, I mean. Right. <laughs> but I, I think we're getting to a good place. But I'm not going to lie. It was hard in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe I worried he resented me. Mm-hmm. But now I we can pretty much go into a social setting or a professional setting where there's drinking. And now I don't really think about it as much. It used to be very clear to me, like, Oh, I'm not drinking. What are people going to think of me? What if they ask me thing is nobody really cares. And if they really ask you like, why aren't you drinking? I'm like, Hey man, I'll be dancing on the table. You don't want to see me. doing that. (laughs) When you're around people who just never developed a taste for alcohol, yeah, or like you were, you know, mentioning people who are of the Mormon faith, right? Like it's just part of their religion and and yeah. other religions as well. Like where we they just don't drink. Like it's such a non-issue. You realize like yeah. that it could be the same for me. I don't have to worry like everyone's going to think this weird thing about me, or like I just don't drink. Why not? Because I don't want to. Like <laughs> I, yeah. you know, it's way less of an issue than you think it's going to be. I mean, I'll. Sometimes I'll put things in a wine glass, you know, like yes. a Pellegrino. Yeah. And most of the time, nobody Make cares. It special. Right. Exactly. And the only people that care are like waiters at a restaurant. They're mad you don't order alcohol because that's. Yes. I do that too, where I've been like, I, can I actually have the Pellegrino in the wine glass? They're all like, <laughs> can think of one yeah. time where they were just like not understanding what I was asking for. I'm like. So yeah. <laughs> but no, it's really been way better than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think yeah. is yeah is amazing. But no, then watching people yeah. drink can be really yeah. annoying. You're like, oh my god, <laughs> people right. that act stupid, you know? Yes. Well, because you know, it's it's uh, this like you know substance induced fun. It's not like yeah. real fun. It's not real meaningful connection, right? There's all there's always a downside. Yeah. There's that short term upside, but then there's that long term negative. And it, they talk about how you know in the beginning when somebody first starts drinking, it really does make them feel great. But over time, I mean, it's a chronic progressive fatal illness. It doesn't give that. Yeah. That um, good sensation anymore. I mean, it just, it never lasts. Somebody's really drinking a lot. It it doesn't work anymore. Right. Now, one thing you mentioned before we started recording, you said like, had this life coaching work been available to you or had you been aware of it back when you were, you know, wanting to stop drinking, like, you know, thinking about maybe that would have been an option. Because we were talking about how, you know, there are plenty of people who think that, you know, they're like, I think I drink more than I would like to, but I don't identify with the alcohol alcoholism or alcoholic, you know, kind of identity. I'm not going to go to AA. Like, I'm not going to report myself to people. I I don't want it to turn into a big thing. And just the idea that like, you know, you can still do it privately 
But like you said, doing it privately and on your own is probably going to be really challenging. But you can do it privately it with coaching skills. Be done. I mean, my sister, yeah. she went through her own journey with alcohol. She she was probably a, a more severe alcoholic than I was, but she bought the big book, which is the AA book. Mm. She went away for a weekend, read the entire book, and then never drank again. And she's mm. probably hasn't for probably over 20 years for sure. Maybe. Wow. Yeah, more than 20 years. But, and that's what her husband did too, just quit. People do it. But I think if somebody had explained to me what my thoughts and my brain chemistry, how they, they were tricking me, or, you know, like the mm-hmm. way alcohol can have that strong effect. And of course, you know, just managing urges. If I, the process of learning to manage an urge would have been really helpful. I mean, the, they give you tools in AA or whatever. You're supposed to call your sponsor. You run to an AA meeting. Basically, it's making you get out of yourself, talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, you Not high. probably yeah. if you sat and did a thought download and you did a life coaching session and you, you will understand. coaching, you can go in and ask, you know, like right yeah, away. Yeah. You have this concern. But if yeah. you biochemically understood why it was happening and you weren't beating yourself up, you yeah. could get through it, you know, and just realize. Yeah. 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 I mean, I kind I of walked before yeah. I went to the rehab, but I I actually had done that several times before, but this time it was like, I made it public. There's no turning back. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. that was dumb, but I think in hindsight, it was the best thing for my family. Yeah. You know, my kids. Yeah. Totally. Um, And what I found is like your story of, you know, dealing with alcohol first and then working on food is less of typically what I see. What I see Mm -hmm. so often is people are like, listen, I got to get my food under control. And that actually ends up being the easy part. And they're like, but, you know, God forbid, do not take my wine. Like, don't take my drinks. Don't take my beer. And that's when they realize, okay, it's alcohol is more of my thing. So did you ever, did you worry if I stop with the overeating? Then I want to drink. I'm, I might go back to drinking. Yeah. No, I wasn't worried about that. I, I feel very solid and secure and not drinking okay. again. I even yeah. thought, what if I was in a situation where I could just drink? I just, I don't, I don't want it. Don't now. want. I really it. do have yeah. freedom around alcohol. Which is so great, right? Because we're like, oh, yeah. I just want to be able to resist the drink. It's like, no, what you want is to not want the drink, and that's yeah. what you've created for yourself. And it's the same with food. It doesn't happen overnight, but I think once you come to believe, like, I don't need this in my body. And if I do, it's a toxin. You know, I think sugar is a toxin. Why are we feeding it, you know, to Mm. little kids? From a medical standpoint, it makes sense to me to not drink and to not put these substances in my body. So Mm -hmm. from a scientific standpoint, it's very easy to embrace that idea. But a lot, I know a lot of people who stopped without having like a major intervention, but it probably boils down to their mindset, their thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. You got to really be devoted to that practice of looking through all the, all the thoughts that create the feelings that you don't want to feel that you drink or eat instead. Yeah. I mean, when I drank, I did things I was not proud of, or, you know, the Mm -hmm. behaviors I had were not behaviors I wanted my kids seeing or were growing up around and normal people don't do that. You Mm -hmm. know, they don't, I I mean, I just think back to so many different episodes in my life where I did over drink and I, 
it's just such an awful feeling. Now, if I could just have a drink and then be done and not worry, but once I start, I can't stop. And then I notice that feeling sometimes if I, if I wasn't planning my food and making decisions ahead of time, I have felt myself slip into that kind of mindset. Like I can't stop. I'm going to keep eating these cookies. You know, Mm -hmm. now I know my brain does that. And more and more, it's just easier to not go there. It's like the joy sometimes are just not worth it because the mind chatter after is just so annoying. And I love, you know, that not feeling starving all the time. You know, now I can go on an OR day and I fast the whole day and it doesn't bother me. Other times I'd be shaking and like, like I got to eat. There's no such thing as being hangry anymore. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, I, I just think your story is just so interesting and so compelling. And I know there's going to be people listening who hear so much of themselves in your story. So I just, again, want to just thank you so much for sharing the story with everybody. But the one thing I do want to emphasize, though, there were people who had had gastric bypass, mm-hmm. like in rehab, because they went off the deep end with alcohol. So I, I do worry about that taking the food away people drinking more. Mm. I mean, I think if someone's aware of it and prepared, they can. Yeah. Right. But just to be careful. And there's, you know, there's a difference between alcohol dependency and alcohol, you know, addiction. There's, they're different. Mm. You know, as as long as you have self-awareness of what's happening, you can probably prevent it from getting worse, but it's really hard to get to a certain point and drink normally. I, I don't believe it can happen. I don't think yeah. I ever could, and I'm not willing to find out. But yeah, right, not worth right. It. Well, yeah. and you know, I find that a lot of people will say that, like, you know, but I just want to be able to drink like a normal person. I just want to be able to have one drink and stop. And and it's the same thing as like I want to be able to eat one cookie and stop. I want to be able to eat like a normal person. Like the parallels yeah. here are so huge. Yeah. And here's the thing: is like some people can get to that place. Like it's not like it's impossible to get there, but you have to really do your own internal work to to get to that place of, you know, can I, or can I not? And, you know, how many times do I have to prove to myself that it doesn't work very well before I just decide, you know, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to do that anymore. That's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing. Same results. results. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, so I think, I, I think that for some people, especially with alcohol going into you know, like AA or like even that addiction model of like, you can't ever have this ever again. It actually prevents them from going and getting help. And so I really look at it like, you know, let's, what are your goals? Let's get some self-awareness around all this. Let's like figure out why you drink the way you do in the first place. Yeah. And then from that place, we can start making some decisions. Like we don't want to wait till it gets so bad that for sure you do identify with the addiction, you know, the addict kind of identity or that, you know, you have to take it all away and then you live, you know, what a lot of people worry will be a very miserable existence without having any alcohol. You know, like I think there can be a middle ground similarly with, with sugar and flour. I have, you know, you've heard me talk about this where people will say like, every time I have sugar, it's like, I mean, my brain goes crazy and I'm never going to tell them, listen, you can't ever eat sugar again. They need to come to that conclusion on their own of like, you know what, the most loving thing I can do, the most supportive thing I can do for myself is to not put this substance into my body that makes my brain short circuit and start acting yeah. fully the way I don't want it to act. Like it's such a personal 
you know, decision to get there. But I think that once, you know, for each individual, if they get to that place and realize like, you know, because like I, I'm saying, like most, you know, a lot of people don't get to that place and they they do figure out right. a way they can, they can moderate it. But if you can find out, you really realize like, I, this, this isn't for me, then we yeah. can do the the thought work on, okay, what are your thoughts? Like the grieving process of I'm not going to have this anymore. And what does that mean for my life? And who am I? It's like all that future self work of like, who am I as a person? Who am I as me who doesn't drink or who doesn't eat sugar anymore? Or, you know, things like that. And it's, I think having yeah. that, that, you know, whether it's coaching or therapy or, you know, rehab or whatever it is, like, you know, having that support, I think is so important. that's what helps solidify it as, as truly a lasting change for you rather than this thing that you try to do for a while. And then, you know, are right back, you know, relapsing back out of the gun. Yeah. Making it public like that in the beginning was so, it was painful and humiliating, but it also set the tone for, okay. Like accountability, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You're telling everybody. I'm never Mm going to drink because nobody... Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with shame too, right? Once you tell, there's, you know, shame lives in hiding in the dark. And once you open it all up, it's like, there's no shame in doing this. This is something that you struggle with and you're going to get help. And, but I also believe maybe it's a belief, but I think some of us are hardwired or biochemically, maybe more predisposed to having a harder time. I accept that about myself because I could Mm -hmm. see it in my children. I know which one of my kids is going to be an alcoholic. And I could tell when he was five, you know, it played out. I mean, I, I see the behaviors and I could see it early on. Mm -hmm. You know, we have this brain, you know, makeup that sets us up. Makes it. Yeah. Sets you up for it. Exactly. Yeah. Really careful. Yeah. I mean, I went to college and my mom, my mom, you know, like talked to me before I went off to college and was like, listen, we have alcoholism in the family. It had skipped oh, that good. generation. It had skipped the generation, yeah. right? But then she was saying it usually skips a generation. So you're the generation. I actually, alcohol doesn't do enough. I really don't think I could ever be an alcoholic. It doesn't do enough yeah. for me. Yeah, and I yeah. feel too bad when I have it. Like, I just don't think that there's enough reward with it. But, you know, being really clear about like, this is something you need to be aware of. Like yeah. your body might respond differently. Like your friends might be able to drink socially and it, it you're not going to be able to maybe. Yeah. You know? Meanwhile, yeah. everybody's getting ready to go to sleep. And I'm like ramping up for the whole night. Like I just was different, you know, it's like it was not safe for me to drink. Yes, totally, totally. Well, if anybody is, you know, listening, I'm sure there's so many, so many people, but people who are listening who are just resonating so much with your story and are thinking about trying life coaching as an option, you know, for help, what would you say to them? I would say this is a great program to do that in. One, it's a safe environment. You know, women physicians, you know, you really identify with. You have the flexibility to get what you want out of the program. You know, you don't have, I hear some people beating themselves up. They're not doing every worksheet right away. I was like, Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, I mean, you'll find what works in the program for you if you just open up to it and just try it, you know, try something. it doesn't seem expensive to me with for how much I get out of it. So I think yeah. don't perseverate on the cost. You're doing something for yourself. And, and the value is like, you help. can't put a price on, on no, the, no, the, the li- quality of life improvement. Yeah. It's yeah. like just having something you do for yourself. Like you just have to do it to maintain your, your well-being. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's really important. 
and it's totally worth it. And yeah, I've gotten more out of it than I expected. You know, I was curious when I started, Mm -hmm. but now I'm like, two of my kids have life coaches now, my two (laughs) college kids, because I'm not trying to coach them, but I actually did hire them and find somebody from the life coach school that worked with young adults. And, you know, they're struggling with life. I'm like, you don't need a psychiatrist. You just need to deal with life. And I, I'm a total believer. (laughs) Like, and I didn't need a psychiatrist. I just needed life management. Yeah. Yeah. Help to deal with like all the pressures yeah. and everything. Yes. Yes. It's amazing what our mind does. <laughs> yes. Right. And and recognizing that it is our mind creating it, right? Yeah. Like it's not, it's not all the other outside yeah. forces. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Amy, thank oh, you so much for coming on. Oh, you're yeah. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for volunteering to do this. Like I said, I know that this is going to help so many people. So I appreciate it. I, I appreciate so. you. And I know so many of the people who are listening are going to be like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So thank you so it was much. It great talking to you too. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for what you do. You're so Take welcome. Care. Thanks. All right. Ready to start making progress on your weight loss goals? For lots of free help, go to katrinaubellmd.com and click on free resources.